Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, so for the record, this is uh, lesson one of the book of Ecclesiastes. Today is September 3rd, uh, 2023. And my name is Dan Truitt, and here is, I'll give you all the the people in the class now. So, uh, Bruce Walkie, the book of Ecclesiastes is the black sheep of the canon of the biblical books. It is the delight of, excuse me, it is the delight of skeptics and the despair of saints. It is an interesting question that we'll get to, uh, maybe today, maybe throughout our study, is why is this book in the canon? Why is it? We we believe it's inspired. Uh, So what is God's purpose of having the book in the canon? And um, uh, thinking about the human process of of the inspired books being gathered together, why did these Jewish leaders agree to put it in there. There was some controversy about whether it should be in the in the canon. Okay, other thoughts about the book of Ecclesiastes? It's kind of like reading existentialism. Okay. Okay. Does that sound uh, inspiring to people reading existentialism from Kierkegaard? Okay. Maybe one way you could say it is the, 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 the futility of finding meaning in life apart from God. Okay, good. The futility of finding, of trying to find meaning. Yeah, <clears throat> apart from God. Apart from God, that's very good. Of course, the whole interest, another interesting dimension of this would be the authorship. Um, most conservative scholars believe that's uh, Solomon, and it seems that the text leads that way, but we're, we're not going to deal with that particularly today, but we will uh, look at Look at that. Uh, another author that I've been reading, a guy named Craig Bartholomew, he says, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you understand the book, there is one waving about in the air that you haven't got control of. So that's an interesting, interesting thought, too. Any other thoughts about Ecclesiastes? I have a bit of a journey with Ecclesiastes. Uh, the first time I remember uh, studying it um, was about 12 or 13 years ago in that room there. Uh, Matt Darwin had a men's group. And Matt is a, I started to say he's a morning person. He's so early in the morning, he's almost a night person. He gets up about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. So he thinks gathering by 5.30 is a late start, you know. But I guess there were... 10 or 12 of us gathered in that room. I think we met at 5.30. I don't remember exactly. It was real early. And uh, we were uh, we were using this book by uh, Douglas Wilson, Joy at the End of the Tether, which I just pulled out of myself a few weeks ago and realized I'd already looked at this book. But we met uh, there, and uh, uh, it was really, uh, it was kind of like the book of Ecclesiastes. Lots of... Um, consternation and conflict, not conflict in the group, but but trying to, to work through the book, especially when you're getting up at 4.30 to get to a meeting. And I noticed that I've only, that I only underlined about halfway through the books. So I think the, the group kind of fell apart after about six weeks. 
And uh, as much as I love and appreciate Matt Darwin, there, I think all of us were kind of glad to move on to something else. But so that was my first, uh, uh, that I thought, you know, he says here, vanity of vanities. It seemed like that's what was happening uh, to me during that day. Now I'm uh, 13 to 14 years older. And so I see this book in a different way than I did then. Sometimes I think maybe only old people ought to teach this book. Although there are very clear, uh, toward the end of the book, the writer does uh, speak to young, to young people. Um, so it is a book for all, all ages. But I do see it differently now, and, and some of the truths that, I, that we, we will learn from this book resonate with me more clearly than they did uh, 15 years ago. The other, the other thing that's happened, it's, this just happened in the last year. Um, as James said, what does the book say? Life is full of problems, then you die. Death is a big part of this book. It's a, it's a major um, topic in this book. And I, uh, <clears throat> something happened in our family um, last year, as you may remember, uh, Dorota Palmer. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm looking for a father. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Must be another class. Okay. There's a bunch of fathers. <laughs> Dorota Palmer. Uh, Your grandfather. <laughs> Dorota Palmer died in our in our home, and that's never happened in my family before. And I. I think I'll bring out more detail about this when we get to chapter seven, but there was a, a first of all, just having someone die in your home is a, uh, where you see them every day and you engage them um, is a unique experience. And, and um, I remember one, I think it was in the morning, I was having my morning Bible reading and I was reading, uh, Literally, uh, Ecclesiastes 7, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And literally as I was reading that, my, my little study is, in the, is adjacent to the bedroom where Dorota uh, was, was, and she was bedridden and couldn't, couldn't get out of bed any longer. And I heard her, uh, moaning and dying and it just was a uh, it just kind of sealed this truth to me about uh, about death and dying and how death instructs the living so that's made this since that year that's made this made me much more open to the book of, of Ecclesiastes so uh, I'm glad we're getting to <clears throat> to work through it together. Well, um, so let's think about wisdom literature for just a, just a moment. Uh, last semester we did the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is, is, can be a complicated book too, but it's pretty it, it pretty, it connects the dots pretty good. If you do this, you can expect this. If you behave this way, uh, you can expect life to treat you this way. Um, can you think of an example of that in the book of Proverbs? I thought about it some, so I have my head of you. Um, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will 
Right. Yeah. Hands, right? A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So there's you know, connecting those those dots. Uh, actions and consequences, actions and, and fruit. Uh, sometimes the, oh like, uh, here's another one, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So all kinds of wonderful um, maxims of wisdom in the book of, in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs does, uh, but, but we don't find that in Ecclesiastes. We find contradictions and stress and skepticism and at least it, it appears what we, what we find. Every now and then in the book of Proverbs, uh, the writer would, would deal with a, with a contradiction or maybe uh, an apparent uh, exception. Remember that one in, um, where was that? Uh, oh, well, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his ways. And then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his ways. What do you do with that? Well, there's a, you know, a bit of a uh, contradiction there, at least it, appear, it appears like it is. So the book of Proverbs deals with those things, but in Ecclesiastes and the other big wisdom literature book, which is the book of Job, Job and Ecclesiastes give, actually give us examples of exceptions to what appear to be the clear rule of, of uh, the book of, of wisdom and the book of Proverbs. We know what precipitated uh, Job's distress and how you know it just doesn't fit the, the book of Job doesn't fit the book of uh, the book of Proverbs we know we know what caused that we have an inside uh, view of the you know the spiritual dimension of what happened with the book of Ecclesiastes we don't know exactly now assuming that Solomon was the author we can track through his life and, and see you know, see his apostasy, and hopefully through the book of Ecclesiastes we see his return. But, um, but Ecclesiastes is a bit of a mystery to us. We don't know what all is going on uh, behind the scenes other than what he tells us. Um, so normally on the, on the first class we would talk about authorship and maybe the date of the book, what are the circumstances of the book. Uh, I want to get right into the text because I think that's where the just to kind of get us get us started in the text. And to do that, I want to look at uh, what is, without question, uh, the most important word in the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, that is the the Hebrew word. Hebel, or something, something like that. And uh, let's look in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter one and get started thinking about uh, this word. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a handout in a minute, but it's got some really neat stuff on it, and I don't want you to read it until we uh, until we get there. Um, but this word, Hebel, it it's the um, it, other than prepositions and you know conjunctions, it's the most used word in the book. It's used 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at how that's that number is very important in a few minutes. But let's look in Ecclesiastes 1 
And uh, we'll look more at the structure of the book in just a moment. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then the ESV says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Maybe your version has something besides vanity. There you have a different verb. Trace, what do you? Ours says absolute futility. Absolute futility. Okay, what version is that? Home on Christian Standard. Home, okay. Absolute futility. All right. Other translations for vanity? Meaningless. Meaninglessness, okay. All right, others? Okay, let me just show you this too. Notice that's verse 2 of chapter 1. Now, go back to uh, chapter 12, the end of the book. The epilogue begins in verse 9 of chapter 12, but the last thing uh, the preacher says, the, 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 uh, the author of the book, the last thing he says in verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So notice that it's the, this word, this concept, are the bookends of the, of the book. That's why it's so important. You're going to see that again uh, in even a, a, a deeper way. The, the word um, hebel, um, it, it, the, the root, I mean, the actual meaning of the word is uh, breath or uh, uh, vapor. Or a puff of air. That's the what. That's what the word uh, literally means. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's used metaphorically. So that's the that's the exciting question, isn't it? How is the writer? What does the writer mean by this word that has the uh, has the basic meaning of breath or puff of air or or vapor? We've already heard several translations, I think, if I got this right, ESV, King James, New American Standard, NIV, all, all use the word, uh, all translate the word of vanity. So meaninglessness, um, let's see others, um, I saw absurdity, um, the idea that uh, something doesn't fulfill what it's intended to do. Life isn't working like we thought it was uh, supposed to be working. Uh, something irrational or even deceitful. Uh, it's an affront to our human reason because uh, we seek order in the world around us. Well, I do. I've got some OCD issues that I deal with and I like a lot of order. Uh, let me straighten this up a little bit. And uh, so the book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a challenging book for me, but, uh, but also a great relief that that's not how the world often is. So I can relax and, and be okay when, when the uh, chewing gum packages aren't right in line in the checkout line. I can just let that go and know that's the writer of Ecclesiastes says that's okay. That sometimes uh, this word can mean or has been translated. Um, Life is not fully comprehensible. And so what, what we begin to see here is, is the idea that that's not God's fault. That's our fault. We can't see. Um, in fact, when we get to the second half of the book, we'll, we'll see one of the big words is uh, man doesn't know. 
he can't see, he doesn't know, and that's why life seems so um, so incomprehensible to us. Another another word would be mystery, or maybe a, a really good one would be enigma. Life is an enigma. It's a it's hidden. It's a it's a mystery. Um, Therese recommended a book to me that I I got I, I got the uh, Therese, I got the digital version, but this came yesterday, so I can finally start marking it up. Uh, this is by a guy named David Gibson, and it's called Living Life Backward. You can't see the backward, but it's written backward there. And I've only read a page, only a chapter or, or so in it. But um, this is a recent commentary on on uh, Ecclesiastes, and I was interested to see that uh, D. A. Carson. Let's see, this was uh, copyright 2017. D. A. Carson says um, the past two decades have witnessed quite a number of popular expositions of Ecclesiastes. And this one by David Gibson is the best one of all of them. So that, I like D.A. Carson's, that was, that was encouraging to me, and Therese likes it, so there you go. But uh, let, me, let me give you a little bit of, a, of what he thinks this word, <clears throat> this word means. He, he uh, begins working with the, with the root, meaning everything, or a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, a bit of smoke, and then he points out that uh, this same word is used, uh, particularly in the book of Psalms, to describe uh, us as people. So let's look at, look at a couple of those. Psalm 39. Psalm 39, uh, 5, and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, breaths in my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. I think that's our word, a breath right there. Uh, surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know uh, who will gather it. Well, that sounds like right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse uh, 11, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth that is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So that's this author's uh, encouragement to us that the best way to understand this word is the is as it applies to us in situations is how temporary it is, how, uh, how fleeting it is. Look at uh, Psalm 144. Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4. O oh Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And then maybe just one more, Psalm 103. Let's go back to Psalm 103. Before 
Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So the whole idea of the temporariness of life and of, uh, and of what we see around us. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes uh, 1. And, and let's take David Gibson's definition and plug it in to uh, verse 2. <coughs> In fact, we could just plug it into the last three words there, all is vanity. Using his definition, we would say uh, everything is a mist or a vapor or a puff of wind or a bit of, bit of smoke. And so what we see here in verse 2 is the writer's uh, thesis for his whole book. He's giving it to us. And so the meaning of the word is, is important, isn't it? Um, some do, I think somebody's version did translate uh, the word meaninglessness, all is meaningless. I think that maybe the better way to say that is um, all appears to be meaningless because we have such limited understanding and such limited knowledge of what's going on around us. You know, just jumping around a little bit, you can see that in the book of Job, can't you? Boy, Job is just clueless of what's going on until God reveals himself to him. Now that's part of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so let me give you my uh, little handout here. thinking a little bit um, if, if we apply this this uh, interpretation uh, this translation that all is or everything is a mist a vapor a puff of wind what are some of the implications of that for us personally everything is a vapor everything is a puff of smoke Gabriel says we don't have much time to have an impact on things. That's good. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. Okay. Now back to Gabriel's point and hang on to yours there. Why? 
Uh, or he gets real clear about that, that you can, you can do a bunch of stuff and you know, build buildings and all kinds of things, and then you're going to die. And it won't be long before everybody will forget about you. Uh, it's fleeting. What do you mean by that, uh, Pi? Okay, it goes away. All right. It is. That's right. It's here now and gone a few minutes. Okay. It's here now and gone soon. No, Therese? I guess I've been thinking about, you know, let's say if it was a puff of breath or a puff of air. I feel like, you know, God's accomplishing something with that breath of air. We need it. But at the same time, it's it's temporary. So, you know, it's, it's still God's plan of doing with it what he wants. But don't expect to hold on to it, I guess. Okay. So even in the, with the puff of air that may describe some effort or our lives, God still is uh, working in that. Uh, this points out that we should spend more time on the eternal, the treasures in heaven, rather than the things that are not going to last here on earth. Okay, good. Spend time, like Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. Okay, good. That's good. Other thoughts about? Maybe uncertainty of how long our life will really be. Okay. Yeah, uncertainty. Um, and part of the implications that we're going to see in this book is because life is unpredictable and very short, um, don't get all upset about what's going to happen tomorrow because you don't know. But live in this moment uh, today, in this, in this fleeting uh, vapor, live in this uh, today. Old uh, Douglas Wilson in his book, by the way, you can hope you might buy a, a book. Either one of these are good ones, I think. Uh, Douglas Wilson, Joy at the End of the Tether. <laughs> and you see the, the, name, the name of his book. He says, we're all tethered. We all have limitations, but we can still have joy. And then listen to what he says here in the beginning. He doesn't question that, that uh, Solomon's the author, but here's how he says it. The great Hebrew philosopher who wrote this book called Ecclesiastes calls us to joy, but to a joy which thinks, a joy which does not shrink back from the hard questions. He calls us to meditation, but to a meditation which does not despair. And as he points out repeatedly, shutting off every avenue of escape, only believers can enjoy the vanity which surrounds us on every side. Only believers can enjoy the vanity or the temporariness that surrounds us. Uh, on every side. So anyway, I'd encourage you maybe to pick up one of those. Okay. Um, time flies. We, we see that life is life is short. Here's what David uh, David Gibson says. The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind. The book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means for our lives to be like a whisper spoken in the wind. And that's why his book is called Living Life Backwards. Go to the end of your life and then work back from there knowing that uh, death is a, is a certainty and it's coming for, for all of us. Okay, any other thoughts about just implications of what does this mean uh, that life is temporary, that everything is temporary? Okay, well, we're good. Let's look at your uh, at your handout. Uh, we'll go. We'll come back to the.
to the outline there in a few minutes, which is just one of one fellow's uh, thoughts about it. But I want you to look at this word. Uh, this was just uh, fascinating to me. Uh, we've, we've been hearing uh, Pastor Justin in his uh, sermon on Revelation use some numerology and different numbers mean different things. I, think he, I don't think Justin does this, but I think he can go overboard on that sometime and find things that aren't there. But look at this. Uh, you can see your note down there. As you may know, uh, in Hebrew, they don't start off with, uh, with any vowels. All they have is consonants. So uh, this word is, in fact, you could make it say different things if you had, you know, if you had a different vowels. And sometimes the Hebrews would, would do that. But each word, I mean, each letter has um, a numerical value. And so the H is five, the B is two, and the L is 30. So there's uh, 37. And uh, Hebel is used 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and so you can see that, that there's 120, there's 222 verses. 222 verses in, in Ecclesiastes. And somebody noticed that half of that um, is 3 times 37. In fact, you notice in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the singular version of this word, vanity, is used three times in verse, in verse 1. So, <clears throat> so uh, if, you, if you go 111 verses into the, uh, into the book, you come to uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 9. But you might, might just look at that. 6, 9. So, many authors believe that the book is divided into two into two halves and so when you come to verse uh, chapter 6 verse 9 better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite and then they have this kind of transition verse or transition statement this also is vanity and a striving after wind so um, the, 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 new, the numerology doesn't include that little um, transition verse, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. But the Hebrews 6, I mean, uh, Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9, is 111 verses, so it's halfway. Uh, and boy, what's even more amazing is it's 1,491 Hebrew words. So uh, this is beyond the sphere of uh, the possibility. Some very bright person has has put this book uh, together. <clears throat> there, it's interesting reading uh, uh, some some modern liberal scholars. They see all kinds of problems with the book. They say a bunch of people uh, put this book together. It's surely not a guy named Solomon. But then you look at this kind of cohesion in the book, and you realize no, there's something much bigger uh, going on here. So 
Um, um, so there's the first half of the book, and then the second half begins in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, and goes through the end of the book. So based on that, uh, here's one way to divide the book. So um, the superscription is just identifying the author of the book. And then uh, part one, which is 1 verse 2 through 6 verse 9, the re- and th- these, two, these parts have two sections to them. One is the reflection. Uh, everything is ephemeral and unreliable. That is, everything is brief and unreliable. And so there's this, uh, this poem, the, the preface, and then nothing is ultimately reliable. Everything is in the hand of God. That's that poem, there's a time for everything. And then uh, number four, relative good is not good enough. And then after, the, after we see the reflection from the writer, then we see our ethics. We see what's our response supposed to be? How do we cope with eternity? I mean, with, with, un, with uncertainty. And then we see these, uh, uh, this guidance from the writer about our attitude before God and then having enjoyment with what we have, not greed for more. Then part two begins in chapter six, verse 10, and goes to the end of the book or at least through uh, chapter 12, verse 8. And um, uh, the reflection is everything is elusive. Um, that is that idea of enigma. Everything is, uh, doesn't seem to make sense. That's what he's, uh, what he's saying here. Uh, so the first uh, point, no one knows what is good. Righteousness and wisdom are elusive. It's an arbitrary world. And so this is the point where, uh, where uh, the writer says that uh, things seem elusive and inexplicable because we don't know. We can't see uh, what's happening. So the ethics, that is the, the expected behavior, is coping with risk and death. Carpe diem, Latin for seize the day. Uh, don't get too far in the future, but look at uh, what's happening today. Um, the world is full of risk, uh, living with risk, and then, uh, then the conclusion. So, uh, I want to encourage you in the next week to read this book. I, I tried to read it every day this past week, and that was quite a challenge. It takes me about 45 minutes to read, uh, to read the book. Uh, and I've been studying it, you know, for several weeks, but I had I thought, well, I probably ought to read it more rather than just study what other people are saying. So I tried to read, I think I missed one day, but uh, an amazing thing happened to me at the beginning of reading the book, uh, I felt kind of like the book itself, it just goes everywhere and it doesn't make any sense, which is kind of the message of the, of the book. But as you know, the more you read God's Word, the more it begins to, uh, to make sense to you. So I'd encourage you uh, this next week, you can use other, you can use other um, outlines, but this is helpful. I think. As you read, look at the outline and see how the verses uh, fit together uh, in, that, in that way. So, so these two meanings, um, everything is temporary, everything is brief, nothing lasts for a long time, is one good meaning of the word. And then the other one, and that, that's what David Gibson really, uh, really hangs on to. And then the other one is uh, everything is elusive. Everything doesn't seem to make 
That doesn't seem to make sense. Okay. Um, any other thoughts or comments before we kind of draw this to a close here? And we might just, we have a little more time, so we might just look at this, um, at the structure a little bit more. There's two people talking in this book. There's, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a, the narrator, and then, and then there's this author who we believe is, um, uh, is uh, Solomon, because it seems so clear in verse one, the words of the preacher, the son of David, a king in Jerusalem, and you see again um, in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then um, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart had, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So um, the consensus of conservative People, scholars that hold a high view of scripture is that Solomon uh, is the writer. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. We'll talk a little bit about more about it uh, next week about you know, what's the context in Solomon's life. But so you have you have this um, this narrator, and he he picks up uh, in verses two through eleven the narrator. Um, see, he's quoting the preacher there. That word. Preacher, uh, it means uh, one who convenes, one who draws people together like a teacher or a preacher. So um, so then we have the, the narrator is, is doing verses 1 through 11. And then you see in verse 12, again, the first person of the preacher um, begins, his, you know, begins his statements. And they go all the way uh, through the end of the book. And if you look in chapter 12... look at chapter 12 you see the narrator picks up again uh, in verse 9 besides being wise the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study uh, is a weariness of the flesh. So notice that this narrator, uh, he, is, uh, he is saying that what this preacher, what this teacher has said uh, is inspired. We don't need to go anywhere else than, than what we have here. So that's an interesting thought for me as we think about this book being in the uh, being in the canon, because some more liberal scholars or Bible students would say that this is a, a pseudonym, a pseudo it's a pseudepigrapha, it's a false book. Like we have others like those are called um, oh the second book of Enoch. Or Russ, you you quoted a couple of those, or Jude quoted a couple of them, but they weren't inspired. They may have thought they were the guy that wrote them wrote as if he was Enoch, but he wasn't. So he wasn't being true about that. So to, for some people to say 
Well, the book of Ecclesiastes wasn't really written by Solomon, even though it appears the text says that it is, um, would mean they're being false about that. And so uh, that says a lot because that means these Jewish scholars that put together the, uh, the Hebrew canon uh, either didn't know what was happening or they, they accepted something that wasn't true. So, um, so I think that gives us a lot of evidence that the, that the book is written by Solomon and of course that it's, um, that it's God's word and it's, in, and it's inspired. Well, um, this didn't take me quite as long as I thought it would to, uh, to go through this morning. I want to read uh, what David Gibson says to kind of wrap up for today. The point that he makes and other people make is that uh, some believe that what Solomon is doing is he's a, that he's attacking uh, uh, paganism and unbelief by describing these, this skepticism about, about life. But what he's really doing, he's just describing what life is like. This is how life, life is. And the sooner that we as believers accept that, uh, the sooner we'll be able to, to relax and enjoy the life that God gives to us. So here is uh, what uh, Gibson says. Being a Christian doesn't stop this being true. This being true, that life is short and that life is elusive. That doesn't change that. It's that these things are true for believers and unbelievers. It's all, it's all the same for all of us. Being a Christian doesn't stop this from being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it is true. That's the problem, isn't it? We just, things keep happening and we think that, you know, that's just an, an aberration. That isn't really how life, how life is. Rather, it should make us make us the first to stop pretending that it is true. That is the preacher's aim. It may not make perfect sense to us yet, but he is carefully laying the foundation for the main argument of his book. Only preparing to die will teach us how to live. And then he says this to, to close his first chapter. Uh, if, this if this depresses you, then keep on reading. There's still a lot to learn, but if it cracks a wry smile on your face, you're halfway to happiness. For the preacher is going to show us what we should and should not expect out of life. He's not just saying there's no gain after we've chased the wind. He will insist that there's no need for the chase in the first place. There is no gain to be hit, to be had under the sun. And that's precisely his point. There's none, there's none need to, to seek after for this except the God that God has made life unpredictable and short and live in the moment of what God has provided for us. So, read the book. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you can read it through at one time, that's, that's really good. But read it this next month or this next week and maybe get a commentary and we'll jump into chapter one uh, next week. Thank you.